0: So last week on Sounds Familiar, we started into this conversation where Jesus begins laying out his brand. He he begins laying out what he and his followers are gonna be all about. But something really interesting happened when he did. Because strangely enough, just when everybody thought they knew exactly what to expect, they knew exactly what Jesus was gonna say and do, he shocked everyone and completely changed the conversation. And what he said and, and the things that he described and the life that he described, like nobody saw it coming. And the truth is, whether or not you're a church person or not, he actually said some surprising things when you begin to read what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we ended last week talking about how ultimately the stuff that Jesus lays out in this Sermon on the Mount, that, that it wasn't easy truth, but it, it does lead to a better life. That the life that he was describing and the things that he talked about, they weren't always easy to swallow, but they do actually create a life that's worth living. Now, I know it's summertime and everybody's got plans, which is great, but I'm telling you, you don't want to miss the next couple of weeks. Next week's obvious because who wants to miss the party at the lake, but uh, uh, but then the following week things are actually gonna—they're about to get really interesting in this series because we're coming to a chunk of of Jesus' sermon where he starts talking about things like anger and lust and divorce. And so, if you've been here the last couple of weeks and you've been a little bit offended or uncomfortable for the first couple of weeks of the series, just wait because it gets better. All right, and and Jesus is about to take things to a whole different level. And so if you've been kind of bored, this is a great time to sort of tune back in because things are about to get exciting as we dive into this stuff that Jesus starts talking about in the next handful of verses. So I, I don't know if you know this or not, but but some of the stuff that you see and read on the internet isn't accurate. A, a couple of weeks ago, I... You ever have that moment where you start reading something or you watch something and then you just go all the way down a rabbit hole and then that thing leads to another thing and you read that thing and then you watch another and then, you're, and then you look up and like it's 45 minutes later and you're just like, what am I doing with my life? So a couple of weeks ago, I went down this rabbit hole of chasing down quotes and famous sayings that either were like never said in their current form that we know them or, or they were completely different from, what, from the original or, or they were attributed to the wrong, wrong person. And, and one of the interesting places that that sort of rabbit hole took me was all the things that people have attributed to Jesus or believe that he said, that he didn't actually say, excuse me, that he didn't actually say. And I, I ran across uh, this meme and it made me laugh a little bit. Uh, it's a picture of Jesus that says, if you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. And in case you're wondering... Jesus didn't say that. Obi Wan Kenobi said that, in Star Wars, uh, and so uh, he kind of looks. I mean, he looks like a little bit like Obi Wan Kenobi, that guy right there. Uh, so, but it got me. It got me thinking about this conversation and and the Sermon on the Mount and and what and the stuff that Jesus actually said. And and I, I think part of the reason that we struggle sometimes with what Jesus taught is is because the preconceived ideas that we all have about the things that he said and did. Especially for those of us uh, who maybe grew up in church, uh, because sometimes, because of Sunday school and because of, you know, all the experiences and things our parents taught us and all these things, and we had that one person in the church that said this, and so we have all this stuff sort of swirling around in our head about who Jesus was and the things he said and what we believe, and, and, and most of it's probably, you know, pretty accurate, but some of it maybe not. And so, a, a while back, I found a, a video that a church did on a series about Jesus that was kind of poking fun at how we can see Jesus uh, sometimes. And, um, and I don't care if you think it's funny, I find it to be hilarious and it's gold. And so uh, they basically took an old Jesus film and just did some voiceover stuff to it um, and it turned out fantastic. And so uh, enjoy. Oh gosh, I have seen that video a thousand times and it, I love it, so good. See, I think one of the problems that we struggle with is that we have a belief or an understanding of what a Christian is or what a Christian should be, but Jesus actually never referred to his followers as Christians. In fact, that label didn't show up until much, much later. And so unfortunately, oftentimes we settle for being a Christian with all of its trappings and and all of the stuff that sort of comes along with this world religion known as Christianity, But the problem is, is that you can kind of make a Christian in our culture anything you want. And people sort of have, because it's not really defined anywhere in the scriptures. It actually only shows up a couple of times in the scriptures at all. And when it does, it really wasn't used by Jesus or any of the leaders of his movement, except for one time and one letter that Peter wrote that was, you know, much after the time of Jesus. But it it wasn't the brand or the label that Jesus used to describe his followers. So what is it that he actually did say? Well, this is where we started and this is what he started with and we kind of covered this last week but I wanted to to read this section again. Before we get to the part that we're going to talk about today, so in Matthew chapter five, verses three uh, through ten, this is where Jesus begins to teach the Sermon on the Mount, and this is his brand. This is the life that he starts describing for them. He says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled." And, and at this point, I can just imagine people trying to like raise their hand, like, "Hey, I, I got a question, Jesus," and he just ignores them. "Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown." Mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, hey Jesus, could I, could I just stop you right there? Because I, merciful, uh, do you know anything about how the world works? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemaking? Do you know what happens to people who try to make peace with Rome? For they will be called the children of, children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it's only the very opening of Jesus' sermon. But I think if you're sitting there on that on that hillside with the people that are there, you could almost feel the confusion. You could almost feel the pushback. You could feel the tension. And I just imagine people looking around and, and finally, you know, people are kind of saying to one another, like, I hope this dude does a miracle because this speech ain't really starting off very well. And I just imagine one of them, the disciples finally getting his attention and going, you know, Jesus, before you you go on, let me see if I got this straight. So we're the, the poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people that are just waiting for their reward in heaven. That's who we are. We're just poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people just waiting for death and our reward somewhere else. And you think, you actually think this is gonna go somewhere? Have you, have you looked around Jesus? Have you, have you heard of the Roman empire? Do you, do you not realize what's happening in the world? But let me tell you what actually happened in history within a few hundred years of this moment. This message of Jesus that started not in Rome, not even in Jerusalem, but here on this hillside outside a tiny village some 80 miles from Jerusalem which doesn't seem like it's you know that big a deal uh, until you realize that most people at this point in history never traveled more than about 15 miles from their home but this same message this same Jesus within a few hundred years of this moment was everywhere nobody was worshiping jupiter anymore and despite the emperor Nero trying to stamp it out in AD 64. Despite all the persecution and hate, the places where the Jesus followers had been fed to lions would become places of worship. The places where Jesus followers were killed for sport would one day bear a cross celebrating a singular crucifixion, that of Jesus and his message. See, somehow the people who were there listening to the Sermon on the Mount that day and many more like them and those that came after them, they so bought into what he was saying, they so bought into the brand, into the life that he was describing that it changed the course of their nation. It changed the course of the nation of Israel and it changed the course of maybe the most powerful empire in all of history. And ultimately it changed the course of the world because they're the only reasons that you and I in 2020, you're sitting in a school gymnasium, opening the scriptures, talking about this guy, Jesus. And so if he didn't call them Christians, what does Jesus call them? How did he describe them? So Jesus looks at them and he sums up everything he had just said in that first section that we call the Beatitudes in his opening. And he sums it up this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made Salty again, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. Anybody seen the salty and lit memes? Nobody seen those? Okay, never mind. So Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, before we get into the metaphors and what they mean, and I wanted to step back and and just kind of talk a little bit about grammar. Any grammar police in the house? Any any grammar Nazis, a few people? Okay, so my wife um, for many years uh, taught English language arts to uh, middle schoolers. And so she is the biggest grammar Nazi on the planet. Um, And it's really annoying. (laughs) It's really annoying to live with somebody that's constantly fixing what you're saying. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, hey, I say it how I say it, all right? I don't care. Uh, So I, I think the two most important, this is why grammar matters. I think the two most important words in both sentences are the subject and the linking verb. And the subject of the sentence, when he says, you are the light of the world, you are the subject. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And the linking verb is the word are. So the two most important pieces of these sentences to me are the words you are, because Jesus is making a declaration about you, about the people that he was speaking to, but he was also looking down through history at all of the disciples and all of the followers of his way that would come after him. And he was looking at you going, this is who you are. He's making a declaration about your identity. He says, you, you are the salt, you you are the light, not the religious elite, not the people that you think are the salt of the earth, not the people that they think they're the salt of the earth, not the people that have it all together, not the super perfect, self, self-righteous, holier than thou crowd, not the priests, not the pastors, not the people who can quote a verse for every situation. You are, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, the regular, all ordinary, imperfect, you. And then he says, and then there's the linking verb. And notice that it's in its present tense. He says, you are light, you are salt. It's as if Jesus is asking them, do you actually see what I see? Have you allowed yourself to see yourself the way that God sees you? You're not kind of like the salt of the earth. You're not kind of like the light of the world. That's what you are. It's not one day, someday, now, it's not, this is who I hope you'll become. It's not if you go to church enough and you try really hard and, and you live right, like you'll eventually get there. No, this is who you are. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. See, nobody... Nobody, nobody looked at the crowd that was listening to Jesus and nobody would even look at the disciples who were there and and thought, man, those people, those people are the salt of the earth. Those people are the light of the world, but God looked at them and that's what he saw and that's what he said. And I think part of this conversation has to be that you, you have to stop defining yourself by who you're not and what you don't have and what happened, to your, you know, what happened in your past, that you stop defining your story and your life by your worst moments or the choices or the thing that happened to you because that's not the way that God sees you. And when you measure your life that way, you will spend it trying to prove something by achieving and accomplishing and accumulating and your whole life will spend, be spent trying to prove that you were worthy. Your life and your story are in process. Who you've been is not who you are or who you will be. The truth is, is that God planned for you isn't based on what other people see in you. And it's not even based on what you see in yourself, but on what he sees when he looks at you. All the things that have been said about you, all the labels that have been placed on you, all the stuff that you wear, all the baggage you have, those things don't matter because you don't know what you can't see. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, one of the reasons why you need Jesus in your life is because he can see what you cannot see. See, because God doesn't love some future, cleaned up, got it all together version of you. He loves the right here, right now, imperfect, hot mess, most days, current version of you. And that you, that's the you that he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And it's not until we begin to see as he sees that we'll begin living as he lived and doing as he did. Okay, so what's up with salt? Salt was um, as common then as it is now, uh, but it was actually more valuable. In fact, um, some people were even paid during this time. Some people were paid by their employers in salt. And and that's actually where the phrase, he's not worth his salt came from you ever heard anybody say that, you know, he's not worth being paid. He's not worth what you're paying him. So, but without refrigeration, salt had two primary functions in this culture. It it worked as a preservative and also as something to disinfect that they use to disinfect wounds. And so that salt preserves and it protects. And, And notice that the whole conversation is about our life right here, right? It's not about what happens when we die. He's not going like, hey, when you get to heaven, you're gonna gonna really be salty. See, that's critical. See, because what happens after you die matters. Eternity matters. It matters more than you could possibly imagine. But Jesus didn't say you are the people who go to heaven when you die, that's who you are. He didn't say that. He said, you are the salt and you are the light. Salt preserves and protects and so what Jesus is saying is you're the preservative of the world around you and the people in your life. You're there to protect them, to uphold them, to keep them from wrecking and ruining their lives, to speak life, to save them from spoiling their future. That's that what they see in your life, what they experience in you gives them hope for their future. So they can know that they're not trapped, that they're not doomed. And honestly, if, if a lot of us began to tell the story of our faith, that would actually be the story. That would actually be a part of our story. That there was something about someone in your life that caught, that caught your attention. It was the way that they were kind or compassionate, the way that they lived that drew you in. And you just wanted to be around them because when you were, your life was better. It was the the, the relationship they had, the way they raised their kids, the way they conducted themselves at work, whatever it is. And at that time, maybe maybe it didn't even make a lot of sense because you saw Christians a certain way, and and that wasn't it. Like they they were breaking the mold, right? But and and they weren't perfect, but they lived their life and, and what they and how they lived actually worked in the real world, and it gave them credibility, meaning that there was something about their life worked in a way that you wanted your life to work that way too. And ultimately, that's why you're here. Ultimately, that's why you became a Jesus follower. Ultimately, that's why you went to church with them. That's why you stepped through the doors. That's why you began reading the scriptures. And maybe for you, it was a salty person who helped you escape what would have been the greatest regret of your life because they were willing to lovingly step into a difficult moment and say, hey, like, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, or you, you don't actually have to go down that path. Like, I, I know you, and this isn't really who you want to be. Like, you're not alone. I'll go with you, I love you, let me help you. See, being the salt of the earth, it's not about like winning arguments and proving points. In our culture, it feels like that's what Christianity is about. Like, we, we need to win an argument. We need to convince people. We need to make a point. We need to prove ourselves. I've never met a single person whose story was, I got in an online argument with someone and I didn't really know about, a, like I, I didn't really know that much about this moral issue, but it turned out to be that they were a Christian and they quoted some Bible verses to me. And, and I just knew that I needed Jesus in my life right at that moment. Like I've never, I don't think that story exists. See, and that's the thing about salt. It's working even when you can't see it. Ever known somebody that got too much salt in something they were making it? (laughs) Ever known somebody that accidentally got the salt when they meant to grab the sugar? You can't see it, but it's there. Salt preserves and protects. Seems like in our culture, sometimes we've decided... That to try to that that our role is to try to preserve our culture or our country, even if it's at the expense of other people. And Jesus would say that your role is to protect and preserve people. If you do that, the rest will take care of itself. Look, I I I love our country. I weep every time the freaking national anthem plays. Jesus is. Then there's there's something deeper and more real, more profound. He goes on. He says, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You know what unsalty salt tastes like? Me neither. That'd be weird if any of us did. But I imagine it'd be a lot like having a mouthful of sand. Same texture. My, my wife loves the beach, but she hates the ocean. And I'm the exact opposite. I love the ocean and hate the beach. And so when we go to the beach, I spend all my time in the water. She spends none of her time in the water, all of her time on the sand. I hate the sand. First time I took my son, um, Kelton, he's, he's six now, about three years old. First time I took him in the water, um, the, the ocean splashed him. And he's like, Mmm, it tastes like chips. And I was like, mm, I don't... Let's maybe not drink that. Look over there. He's like licking the salt off his hand. Uh, But I hate the beach because I hate sand. Like if it stayed off of me and on the beach, it'd be fine. But it doesn't. It gets everywhere. It gets into anything. And sand that's not on the beach is not helpful, right? It's not good for anything. It's not helping me enjoy the ocean. It's just annoying. And unlike sand, which might be able to be repurposed, unsalty salt actually has no purpose at all. And I think part of what Jesus is saying is this, is that if you lose your credibility, if you lose your influence, it's really, really tough to get it back. I've been a pastor for quite a while. And over the years, I've constantly had people go, hey, why don't you make stronger statements or take bigger stands online? And, And this conversation is the very reason. See, because I have one rule that I live by when it comes to social media. I never willingly give away influence. Never. So I'm not gonna go on and, and say something that's just gonna alienate a whole bunch of people. It's not because I'm afraid to say something. It's because I'd rather have a conversation with one, one-on-one with somebody. Because I go there and then the, the comments happen and then people are fighting. I, was, I saw an article this week and somebody made a post and then it was like, and it just all these people in the comments. And I'm just like, none of this matter. Why are you fighting? And it's like, yeah, well, you're the devil. Oh yeah, well, you're evil. Oh yeah. It's like, how is this productive? And Jesus is saying, look, it, it, if you lose your credibility, if you lose your influence, that, that there's a directionless and a pointlessness to your faith that will begin setting in. And you, you don't actually have to look very hard in our culture to see Christians being trampled on for our faith to be made fun of for us to be the butt of the joke for for our rights you know people's rights are being eroded but but here's here's the thing like I, I can't help but wonder is it possible not not completely but is it possible that at least some of what we've experienced is because we've become really good at being christians but not really that great at being salt and light and jesus said you are the salt of the earth and he continues In verse 14 and 15, he says, you're the light of the world, but a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone. When I read that, I was like, a bowl? I thought it was a bushel. Like, isn't it hide it under a bushel? No. I'm gonna let it shine. Anybody know that song? You grew up in Sunday school. Don't let Satan. Y'all didn't grow up in church because you'd have been... (gasps) You'd have been blowing at your finger right there if you knew that song. But, but what you, this, this is what he's saying. Light can't, it cannot and should not be hidden. Salt preserves and protects, but light illuminates and directs. It illuminates and directs. And honestly, light is pretty powerful, right? Anybody remember when Krispy Kreme first hit the scene and you'd be driving down the road and then that hot now light would come on and it was as if like in those sci-fi movies where a tractor beam came out from the store, just locked onto your car and just like, I don't have a choice, honey. It's going right, right? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Because if it wasn't hot and ready, like if it wasn't hot now, it was just a regular donut, who cares? But when it was coming out of the oven hot right now, it was like heaven just kissed that little conveyor belt just for you. And you're just like, thank you, Jesus. Man, that was, that was powerful light. A few years ago, um, <clears throat> we, were, we were on vacation and uh, we were in Kauai and we had the opportunity uh, to explore this massive lava tube. And, uh, and so we went and you kind of hike down. It's just like right in the middle of the town. You just go to this place and park and then they're like, okay. And you put on these, you strap on these headlamps and, um, and you're literally like, you kind of just crawl down that hole and then they led us down there and, and you get underneath and it's just this massive cave that just stretches. You can't even see how far it stretches. And so we started kind of walking around in there and we went around the bend where the hole from where the hole was that we entered. And he goes, hey, I don't know if you've ever been in absolute complete darkness, but let's all turn our headlamps off. And so we turned our headlamps off and I... I cannot even describe to you how dark it was. It was disorienting. It was crazy. Like, I just felt like, oh my gosh, I don't, I I, I can't even, I can't see my hand right in front of me. It doesn't matter the movement. It was so dark exploring that cave. And even in that moment, my impulse was like, man, I got to turn my light back on as soon as possible. Why? Because, because, Darkness is lonely and confusing and disorienting and scary and cold and isolating and depressing, but light illuminates and it brings hope and warmth and connection and clarity and calm. And the truth is that there's something about the struggle to find life, to deal with the darkness inside ourselves that just is always coming out into the open. And it's not a religious thing, it's just a human thing. You just look at the list of the biggest movies of the TV shows or think about the things that you've been watching and, and the stuff that like you're drawn to see and the stuff that is the biggest stuff on screen. Remember when we used to have movies? Yeah, they're coming back eventually. But when you look at all of those things, right, it doesn't matter what year. So many of them are about the struggle with ourselves, about the struggle between darkness and light. And then he says, but light cannot and shouldn't and should not be hidden. And I know part of this idea can make us probably a little bit uncomfortable because he's talking about us, right? Because you, but we, we just kind of want to keep our faith to ourselves. But according to Jesus, God intended our faith to be personal, but it was never, ever intended for it to be private. There's no way to be a Jesus follower and not be, and not be seen. As he said, like, like, like a city that's placed, that's built strategically on a hill so that people can see it. At night when it's dark, there's no way for that city to not be seen. That's your life. There's no way to be in the dark and the light be present and you not be able to see the light. And so when you take them together, he's saying you are an essential ingredient and you've been strategic pl- strategically placed. You are salt. You are an essential ingredient and you are light. You've been strategically placed. And so which you're like, okay, strategically placed, not me. Look, dude, like I didn't like all the other people from like moved here from California. I just got transferred here or, you know, I'm not strategically placed to which Jesus would say, no, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. You're like, I'm still living at home with my parents because I didn't get into the school that I wanted or I can't afford to move out. I'm not strategically placed. And Jesus like, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. We just came here to escape the craziness of California. We didn't really have a plan. We just decided Idaho was better. And it is, by the way. Jesus is saying, you're strategically placed. And this is what Jesus says will happen as a result of us being salt, an essential ingredient and light being strategically placed. In verse 16, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. And this is how we read the rest of that, that, this verse that they may see your church attendance and say, dang, that boy's a good Christian. But that's not what he said. He said, let your, shi- let, let your light sh- shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father who's in heaven. He's going, I want you to live your life in such a way that people see what your life is producing. And when they do, They can't help, but at some point kind of step back and go, are you kidding me? Who does that? Like, who's that generous? Who's that accepting? Who's that kind? Who's that sacrificial? Who's that loving? Who's that fearless of death and loss? Who lives with that kind of peace and joy in the face of all of the chaos and uncertainty and angst in the world? What do they know that I don't know? What do they have that I don't have? See, as a Jesus follower, there's a direct relationship between how we behave and what other people believe about God. I know that makes us uncomfortable, but that's what Jesus was saying. That God's brilliant strategy for reaching the world with his love, it's you and it's me. To which my response is, God, that's the best the best you could do is me. You might want to have a plan B. And God's like, I've gone all in on you. I'm all in on you. He doesn't have a backup plan. It's you and it's me. It's not celebrities. It's not politicians. I know we think, oh, Justin Bieber would just say how much he loves Jesus. And then Justin Bieber did and nobody cares, right? Like Justin Bieber led that one worship song. At Coachella it was so amazing. But no, there weren't floods of people going, Justin Bieber loves Jesus. I'm gonna go to Jesus. Right? That's what we think. Celebrities, politicians, oh, if that one Instagram influencer would just, if if God, if they just came to faith, God, if they got, oh my God, like it would just be. No, his plan relies on the value of ordinary people who follow the path and the ways and the life of an extraordinary God. See, they may not even know it yet, but somewhere someone is waiting on you to become who God created you to be. Somewhere someone is waiting on you to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in their life. They're looking for some hope, they're praying for a sign, they're searching for some truth, and you are God's answer to that prayer for them. Don't settle for just being a Christian. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are an essential ingredient. You've been strategically placed. By the way, the Jesus followers in the first century and the second century who heard this, they believed it and they flat out got after it. They would go down to the river where the orphans hung out the children that had been abandoned. And they would go and bring those kids into their families and raise them. When plagues would break out in the Roman empire, And people would flee cities, leaving behind all those who are sick. The followers of Jesus would go into the cities, into the communities, into the towns to care for people as they died. Risking their own life, many of them perishing in the process. And people began to look around going, who does that? Who cares like that? Who loves like that? Who sacrifices themselves in that way? But that, that's how they changed the course of their country. That's how they changed the course of the most powerful empire in history. That's how they changed the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Let's pray together.